Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, December 15th, mm-hmm. 2019. Things are continuing to spin out of control, heading... To what? To Christmas? To Christmas. Oh, it's out and of New control? Year's. It's the end of the decade. Oh, oh you yeah. You realize this year, we, we this week, yeah. we just saw the last full moon mm. of the decade. Let me say that again. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm with you. Uh, I certainly hope so. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, I'm, I'm certainly attuned to the notion that we're into the holiday season and uh, not to be left behind in this connection, of course... Uh, I took Miss Granger out uh, last night. We were oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. what? We didn't do any birthdays. I don't know. I Belated a... happy birthday to, to Armand. Oh, right, of course. Who was celebrating up a storm? <laughs> Maybe not. Last last week. That's right. Keep it. Keep it. Talk uh, about time flying. Keep a lid on it, Armand. You know, let's keep a lid on it. Take it easy. All right. All, All right. right. Back to you and. Taking your wife out. Showing you a good time. Uh, yes, we, we went to... Well, you had a good time. We went to we a theater. We had a good time, theater. but I made all the arrangements. That is, that's true. But I was I did escort you there. We uh, we went to the uh, McCarter Theater. And uh, we saw John Pittarelli and Catherine Russell perform. Now, uh, John Pittarelli uh, is someone uh, we, and I think particularly I am partic- uh, very familiar with because I listen to his radio show. It's called Radio Deluxe. He does it with his wife, Jessica Malaski. It is very much like Tamsin Dan read the paper, a little weaker with respect to the banter back and forth, but they rely heavily on music. Uh, they're both musicians. She's a great guitarist. And she- they know stuff. They know stuff. She's a singer. She's a theater type singer. But I still don't understand Radio Deluxe. That's what it's, it's just called. online. It's yeah. not. Yeah, it's they, not on an actual radio they, station. They are on a few different radio stations, but they're they obscure stations. Yeah. But the way to find it is just Google Radio Deluxe. Radio Deluxe, right? And it's worth yeah. listening to. And, and anyway, he's an excellent uh, guitarist. He, he sings uh, a lot of standards, but a lot of other stuff too, uh, including with Paul McCartney, including with James Taylor. Um, he's famous because his dad. Well, that's not why he's famous. His dad, Bucky Pizzarelli, was a, a jazz guitarist, but I think he's famous on his own. And uh, he was performing yesterday with uh, Catherine Russell. Now, Catherine Russell uh, is someone that we saw when we were at Mohonk, the WBGO uh, concerts. Jazz Weekend. J- jazz Weekend in Mohonk jazz last in year, right? And that was about a year ago, and we're going again in a couple of weeks. Um, she was unbelievable. She, she was a powerhouse. You're talking about last night when we saw no, her no, in January. No, uh, when we saw her okay. um, singing blues, basically. Yes. Uh, right, right. In uh, the jazz uh, weekend. Right. And so let me, yeah, she was, and she was great last night. And they, they, were, they were, just to, to pause on Catherine Russell, which is kind of interesting because John Petrelli, again, only performs with Jessica Malaski, and they were just spent, they finished a two week gig at the Carlisle. Which is pretty serious business, uh, quite expensive. The Cafe Carlisle, but yet he does a whole set of performances with Catherine Russell. You might wonder why. And the answer is this woman can really, really sing. Uh, there's a quote I pulled from a review of one of her albums, which says her voice has been described as reminiscent of many of the great jazz and blues singers. Her phrasing is impeccable, her delivery relaxed and effortless. It never seems. As if she's trying. True. That's exactly right. Right. So they did, uh, I forget the name of the program. It had something about Sinatra and Billie Holiday in it. 
Uh, certainly Pizzarelli opened with a slew of Sinatra songs, and I guess uh, and Catherine Russell came on next, and she was doing mostly Billy Holiday songs. But as, as Pizzarelli uh, acknowledged at one point, he says, look, what we're talking about between Billy Holiday and Frank Sinatra is they recorded every song. So if we say we're doing Sinatra and Billy Holiday, we can do whatever we want. And uh, they did. And it was... Uh, it was great. I mean, it was great instrumentally. He has a trio, so he has a bass and he has a, a jazz a pianist, uh, and the two of them are singing. And uh, it was a, I thought it was a wonderful evening. Yeah. And I, well, she's I, also an interesting person. Yes. Her dad. Her, her dad had, was a band leader who eventually linked up with Louis Armstrong, and Louis Armstrong became sort of the lead act with respect to the band. So it became Louis Armstrong's band. Yeah. But her dad was the leader for the band. Right. But what did they say about uh, her mother? Her mother studied voice, uh, had uh, advanced degrees in voice from two different uh, prestigious institutions, and uh, was quite learned and uh, quite an effective singer. And she was somehow involved with the band as well. Uh, I didn't catch that. I didn't catch that. I thought it might have been like she was out managing it or something. I don't know, but I think once Louis took over, but Louis anyway, took over. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and that was in the 30s and 40s, right. the period she was, uh, Catherine was talking about. Right. Um, so, uh, well, well, she actually came up as a background singer. I don't know if uh-huh. you picked up on this. No. She was a background singer for years. I mean, you notice she's she's 60, a little bit over 60. but it's Which not, is unbelievable. Her voice. Her voice is great. Was pristine. But it's not like she was you a know, star. How many older pop yeah. singers do you hear and you say, wow, right. why am I paying for this? She was superb. But the reason you, people don't know her, she was not a star in her 20s or 30s or probably even her 40s. She was a backup singer and in particular spent many years a backup singer for David Bowie. And uh, she stepped out of that shadow and, and has recorded five or six albums that were well-received as a jazz and blues singer. But I don't think that puts you in the front of the uh, music biz these days. Anyway, it was, uh, it was great. I'm it glad was you got night. the tickets. Yeah, we went, uh, we went with some friends. We went out to dinner. Uh, we uh, lived it up. We lived it up. Uh, yeah. So uh, you found an article that uh, I overlooked somehow, but it's, uh, it kind of hits home which is an article about uh, the area which, uh, well, it has to do with the Lincoln Plaza Cinema, but why don't you explain? Well, we talked uh, before on the podcast yeah. about this art house, uh, movie house that we loved uh, in near Lincoln Center called the Lincoln Plaza Cinema yeah. uh, that uh, closed down. Um, it had been uh, started in the 80s uh, by Dan and Toby Talbot and... Uh, the uh, landlord refused to sign to give them a new lease and uh, saying that uh, place is falling apart. You need to um, renovate or yeah, whatever. That's probably right. And, uh, you know, um, Talbot, Dan Talbot passed away uh, recently. Um, so uh, that was the end of that. But not so much. This band of believers yeah. on the Upper West Side yeah. has kind of put together uh, a, um, you know, kind of resurrected version uh, that they call the New Plaza Cinema. And they're showing films in a um, uh, in an auditorium. Yeah, it's run by NJIT. And yeah. uh, they're doing it on a kind of an ad hoc basis and not even doing it on a regular basis. So maybe it's, it's every couple of weeks or something like that. I, yeah. It's something. With volunteers. Sell, with volunteers. Selling the tickets, yes. selling yes. the snacks, right. et cetera. Is, they're trying to raise money right. uh, to uh, find a permanent location. They're really fearful that they will lose this space because the school has been selling off sure. 
Um, They're right. Places in the area. Um, but they do show legitimately interesting and to some extent commercial right. movies. Right now, yeah. you know, this weekend, uh, their program included Where's My Roy Cohn? Okay. So that's uh, a documentary, right? Yeah. Um, Downton Abbey. Yeah, for those, well, who, well so what's the point? It? Anyway, you can see Mountain Abbey at any movie theater. It's better in the big screen, and you know, it's maybe it's local to you. Maybe you're what, near there. What are okay? A French film called Monsieur Klein. Okay, I don't know anything about that. And The Lighthouse what? with Defoe and Pattinson. Oh, yeah, that yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that played one. Time. So you know, I mean, those are you know, well, it's, look, it's not just uh, to me, old crazy reruns. It, it, it raises an interesting economic issue because they do note in the article that a lot of these theaters have closed. You told me Sunshine Cinemas closed. And maybe yeah. a couple of others have closed. Yeah. So the question is, though, what is this telling us in terms of the economics of this? Is this going to work or can it possibly work? And if, if there really is such a large contingent of people who are eager to see these films in a large screen, considering how well-heeled people are, especially older fans is what this group is, on the Upper West Side, why can't you make it go commercially? Because you can't. Yeah. And it, and the question is, well, you can't. So wh- what why is that? Yeah, I, I don't I don't quite get it. I mean, that's why I think it can't. I mean, I'm not unsympathetic, but uh, it's kind of uh, you know, it's it's hard to know how you solve that problem. So you know, do we even know if these people went regularly to the Lincoln Plaza Cinema when it was still open? I don't know. Well, here's uh, here's the thing. One guy says, one guy who's uh, you know helping uh, Barry Shulman, yes. seventy two, retired television exec, uh, was selling candy from the wicker basket. He says, after I retired, I didn't move to the Upper West Side just so I'd have to get on the subway and go down to go downtown to the Angelica. Yeah, okay. I mean, he wants local access. Well, so if that's to this kind let me tell you of, something. If, stroll if that's what's the, driving this, this will be. A dead in three and weeks. you know the the Paris, the Paris is a different thing. Cinema closed down. Well, but the Paris is sort of the it's sort of and what, that's right. It proves in, the opposite the, though. So the Paris is a big movie theater that played popular movies of a certain type. And yeah. It would play Sound of Music for two years. It would play my, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead, what? I'm just going to say, it's the only single screen theater left in New York. It's a big screen. Yeah, it's a big screen. So they actually closed down, and they were reopened to play Marriage Story. I think Netflix. Netflix did it. Has, has, uh, but either bought the theater or leased the theater, and they're playing. So why does that story. work? That works because Netflix has figured out that's a commercially attractive proposition to see to have Marriage Story on a big screen. It's part of you know their business plan. They have a little bit of big screen business, but and that's a no fabulous big screen. That that's yeah, this can't. This can't pop. Look, it's, I'm sympathetic to some degree. I certainly like the idea of going to that theater, and we went to some good movies there and some terrible movies there. By the way, some really <laughs> terrible movies there. But you know, I, I can see the same group. You said, "Yeah, no, we got to support this, so we're going to you know charge fifteen dollars a ticket." I can see everybody saying, "Well, wait a minute, fifteen dollars a ticket? I don't know about that." I mean, that's what you've got. So you've got people who want what they want. They want a movie theater there that's available when they want to go. They want it to be three blocks away, and they don't want to have to go all the time, so they can spend ten dollars a month. That's not going to do it. There was also a, a good quote about um, you know. Uh, raising the money for it. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, this time, yeah. This is a New York quote. Go ahead. Okay. And uh, um, one of the volunteers, Ms. Levy, a retired lawyer, says, This city is full of wealth. $3 million is apparently what they need to secure a permanent location, is nothing to some people. We only need one of those people. Right. Maybe two. Okay. We'll let them name the place. Right. Mike Bloomberg Theater, whatever. All we need is the theater. 
will do the rest. Well, so the funny thing, as I know from being on the other side of that conversation, is that, uh, or on that side of the conversation, is that as many uh, millionaires and uh, billionaires, even as there are in New York who might contribute, there are as many nonprofit organizations looking for that same contribution. That's what New York is. So everybody's got their hand out, and you still have a lot of people willing to give a lot of money. Uh, hope springs eternal. But uh, well, anyway, good luck I thought to it was kind it's of cute. cute little it's, grassroots it's, effort. It's a New York Times article. It's a New York Times thing. naive but, article. Like, wouldn't it be know. great if these people had a movie theater? Here? Also, the only people really supporting it are older people who, who live within two blocks. Going to the movies, who live within yeah. two blocks. Of, you know, yeah. the people downtown aren't supporting it because they, they have their own. So, so that's, that's going to be a tough sell. So there's another article, as I mentioned, I was going to weigh in on that 25 films have been added to the National Film Registry. I don't even know what the hell that is. I know. I knew you'd ask. The so National what? Film Registry is by the Library of Congress, and they induct films uh, annually, uh, recognizing their artistic significance and helping ensure their preservation, as if they're, they identify the, the country's so best movies. So it's a movies. list of films right. they think are worthy. Yeah, and they've already found the good films already. They're done. But because for political reasons, whatever, every year they say, eh, 25 more. So now you're into the film, not so great. They're sort of okay. I don't want to get into that. There's one great film in but this, see, I this don't, I still don't understand. I, there's nothing to understand. Because, yeah, because it's, it's one thing if you're preserving buildings, yeah, it's, and then you're going to control it, you know, whether they're torn down. Yeah. What are they going to do? Say, you let, know, let, me, let me sum it up in one word. destroy these celluloids? It's meaningless. But it's interesting to observe the exercise Amadeus is on the list. That is a great film. It's the only one that's a great okay. film on the list. But I, there are two movies there that I'll just throw out to tell you what's going on in terms of the sentimental appeal films, and maybe you'll respond in a different way. And those films are Sleeping Beauty and Old Yeller. So, your reaction to Sleeping Beauty and Old Yeller? Are they uh, key films in the American pantheon, or you could pass? Yes. Yeah. Fine. I, All right. I, you know, no they, huge connection. No, no huge connection. Every boy in my think, class cried watching yes, Old Yeller. Yes, my brothers, my father, there you go. all about Old, Old Yeller. Exactly. I did not get it. Right. Okay. There we go. Did not get and it. And what do you think of Sleeping right Beauty? Right up there with Zed. Yeah. You know? What do you think of uh, Sleeping Beauty? Sleeping Beauty was fine. You know? It was a different look. It was an interesting look, I thought. It was okay. Okay. Right. It was fine. It was all lovely. right. Go on. Yeah, I you're can, you're I tough. I can sing most of the songs. What yeah. do you want? Um... Now, uh, now, now you're on. Now, yeah. then, uh, then there was a great story. Also, the New York Times uh, Metropolitan Section about Bird Camp. Yeah. Apparently, there's a place called Bird Camp, or there was a place called Bird Camp uh, that has been operating on East Fifty Third Street since uh, you know um, East Fifty Third Street. Wow. Yeah. In uh, since like two thousand one, and it's a place that boarded. Birds. Which is crazy to me. Which is crazy. But it, it, it never occurred to me, but when bird owners go on vacation, what do they do? I mean, maybe there are bird yeah. sitters. I, I'm not okay. going to put you on the spot because there's no way you could know this. But I don't, when you bring it to the bird sitter, does the bird just go into a large room with other birds? Or is each bird have no, its own have cage? No, they have a cage. They, have, have, all these, have, they have millions of cages. I see. And uh, birds, especially the big birds, are problematic. Really? Uh, because they're big. They poop. They're noisy, yeah. and uh, you know it's hard. This I think this um, bird camp had forty cages. Yeah. Okay, so that's a lot of noise, and uh, they remarked that not everybody can stand to be around that level of uh, bird chatter. Uh, so anyway, it it has an interesting story. It was actually started by a man, Brian Gibson, a self-educated ornithologist. 
who was also as um, autistic mm-hmm. and says his mother and a terrible anxiety. So he starts this business, calls his mom up uh, to come help him. She comes up from Georgia uh, to help him, uh, you know, uh, in 2001 right. and never leaves. She thought she would be there for just a couple months it? and she never leaves. By now, you know. Hey, but he leaves. He leaves. He leaves because the the business makes him too anxious. Yeah. Well, the business has gotten more and more yeah. uh, difficult. And, and, I yet, mean, it, and yet, talk about this, the economics yeah. of doing something in basically midtown Manhattan. Yeah. Um, so, and think, the biggest problem actually is what it always is: finding help, right? Finding reliable help. For a while, it went very went very well because they had. Well, uh, I think economically, it always works help. well. She just can't deal with it anymore. Yeah, she she's is, getting uh, older. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, so other than that, people like use there are some veterinarians. They mentioned actually one of the um, big u- users of Bird Camp was Cindy Sherman, famous. Uh, Why artist. am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that is kind of a fun story, and it's a fun idea. I mean, uh, ooh, Kathy Easton, my friend Kathy Easton. Yeah, um, so you can buy into this business. Cheap. You know, have you yeah. ever thought, Kathy, you'd like to have a place or, in New York City? Or you know, op- open a movie theater in the same area. Be a nice <laughs> retirement business in New York City. Drive yourself for insane. a person with bird skills. Look, economically, there's no question it works. It sounds like these people will spend anything to board their birds in a place that well, they feel is comfortable. Well, it seems to range from 20-something to 50-something a day at bird camp. Yeah, at bird Other camp. places are more expensive. Well, they did say at one point. It depends on the size of the bird. They said, look, uh, there's no shuffleboard or art classes, but we treat the birds very well. So, and they uh, give you, they used to give you a little report. Oh, did they? About what the birds were what, what they're up to? doing. What they're doing in arts and crafts? And, and how yeah. they Here's made, something the bird made for you in the four days he was but gone. Some of the yeah. owners claimed they, they loved to go. The I, birds loved to be there. And another New York older person article. So here we go. Um, it's bowl season, college bowl season. I can't possibly, Tamsin, in my effort to prepare you for this, describe all the college football bowls that are going to take place. There are 40, count them, 40 college football bowl games. And they are, there are some, of course, you know, that are major You're not bowls. you list them, are you? But there are some, you know, some that you can't even believe their name like this. The Quick Lane Bowl. The Cheez-It Bowl, the First Responder Bowl, the Red Box Bowl, the famous Idaho Potato Bowl. You know, it goes on and on and on. So it, it's, uh, it's crazy. I like the names. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm good. The Gasparilla Bowl. But here's what you have to know. So every day you're going to come home and you're going to say, I feel like watching football. There's going to be seven games on. They're going to be obscure games. I'm not going to bore you with detail. I didn't say you should mind it. But here's what you've got to keep your eye on. You want to know who's going to be the national champion. Uh, of the college football scene. Okay. And buried in this are a couple of dates that matter. December 28th, the national semifinals. And that takes place in two bowls. One's called the Peach Bowl. LSU plays Oklahoma, one versus four. And at this, that same date, in the Fiesta Bowl, number three Clemson pay, plays number two Ohio State. The winners of those two games are then the finalists. And they play in the last bowl game, which is January 13th, otherwise called the National Championship. Um, so those are the ones you gotta you got to focus on. December 28th, January 13th. Keep those in mind. Everything else is just background noise, you know, or cute names, however you want to put it. But I did, you know, talking about those big games. Wait a minute, when's the final final? January 13th. Okay. So, uh, so I've, I've got time. Well, you want to watch the semis on December 28th. But those, those are big games. Um, okay. So how did the Army-Navy game end up? 
Uh, Navy killed them, as I told you they would. They'd really just the thirty-one to seven or something. Um, but the, uh, we both agree. No, what? Army had the better uniforms. They had nicer helmets. Um, no, the uniforms were cool too. Okay, you were more interested in that than I was. But uh, yes, uh, I'm not going to disagree with you. So they had an article in the journal about. Uh, they said, you know, these college quarterbacks, they don't really have a lot to do with the universities they represent. What do they mean by that? Well, here we go. Joe Burrow is going to be the number one pick in the, the draft next year. Oh, listen, listen, all and, of them, listen, all of and, them. No, the big time ones. Joe Burrow, the LSU quarterback, will be the number one pick in the draft. He, I think he won the Heisman Trophy yesterday. I hadn't even checked, but I'm sure he was going to win. Uh, he was a transfer. He was a transfer. Famously, he was at Ohio State, and he was beaten out by a player that's now in the pros, who a lot of people have, uh, Dwayne Haskins, aren't too thrilled with anymore. But this guy went to LSU and has really thrived. But here's the... Uh, it, well, and this goes all the way around. All these teams. Jalen Hurts was at, at Alabama, transferred to Oklahoma. He's playing that Final Four. He's another of the school. Then you have, uh, what's his name? The guy, an Ohio State quarterback, Justin Fields, transferred from Georgia. They're all transfers. But not only are they transfers, they don't go on the campus. Because when you transfer, you there's some you have to, some delay. You can't play right away. And therefore, a lot of these transfers, let's focus on Joe Burrow, they've graduated. He graduated college before he played at all for LSU, which means he has eligibility, but he's not going to school, except he's taking master's courses. How do you do that? Online. He's never been on the campus. And this is true of all these guys. I won't dwell on it because I know you're not that interested in it, but I'll just give you one quote from, uh, from Justin Fields, who's in the same situation, having gone from Georgia to Ohio State. And he said, uh, online courses, uh, he, he says he hasn't, doesn't really get to the campus. He'd rather watch Netflix at home than explore his school. Quote, but from what I've seen, the campus is beautiful and the people are great. So there you go. So this is like late breaking news that some football players don't go to class? I'm just, not that they don't go to class, but yeah. they don't go to the yeah, campus. This is an old, old thing. All right? Okay. So these all guys, right. it's not like they They're mercenary. are scholar athletes. It's not, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just no. saying the system is one. In which, but this is what you didn't have these transfers before. That actually is new. The system was you went to a school and it worked out or it didn't work out, but your star players stayed for four years and you got to see whether they were uh, mature in such a way that they became successful players and quarterbacks. That's not the way. It's like free agent uh, baseball. Right. They sign with another team after yeah. one year. Yeah. That's weird. They're just hired hands. Yeah, exactly. So why right. not pay them? Yeah, they might get paid, but that's another All discussion. Right. All right. All right, go ahead. Um,. Stereo photography. That's what I thought would come up next. All yes. the rage this weekend. Yes, there's more okay. than one article. So this is something. This is a subject that's near and dear to me because yeah. I always have to teach a little bit about the history of photography yeah. in one of my survey courses. Right. And uh, so uh, <laughs> you know, and I trot in some old tintypes and some stereographs and even an old stereo. I, I, I didn't know you did that. Really? Oh yeah, oh, I yeah. have stuff. Yeah. Okay. Some of which. Uh, yeah. Good. Was from my parents, yeah. Uh, but some of which I've just acquired. Yeah, I've, I've seen over stuff time, parents, yeah. Uh, and it's kind of fun. And uh, of course, the uh, students are astonished at uh, these uh, items. Uh, many of them are over a hundred years old, mm -hmm. so this goes way back. But it's the practice of taking a double picture mm -hmm. of a landscape or a situation whatever right. and from slightly from slightly different vantage points so you have two images 
of the same right because picture. on the theory because you have two eyes right you have and, two eyes and, so your eyes are looking at things from slightly different angles right. and so should the camera lens this is also the um, kind of theory behind the philosophy behind 3D movies sure. that we see it's right. uh, you know only in a much so more you have here, sophisticated presentation you've had traditionally so what's interesting over, over, here is yeah. number one there was an article yeah. by a guy Luke Mitchell yeah. in the New York Times magazine about his father taking um, these kinds of pictures uh, stereo pictures he his father had been a um, an asphalt engineer industrial equipment salesman headhunter for engineers, etc. He got interested in stereo photography and, uh, you know, he looked into it. He looked into the old Victorian stereoscopes. Um, he looked into um, Viewmaster devices, right. etc. But he decided he did it very low tech. Mm -hmm. He didn't even have a, you know, um, stereo camera, kind of stereo lens camera, double lens camera. He had a Pentax and he would just take a picture and then move over three inches and take another shot. Mm -hmm. And he also decided, you know, he wasn't really interested in the devices that you use to look at these images and get that 3D effect. He believed in free viewing where you post, uh, you put the two images right next to each other in a frame and the person has to look at it and move back and forth to find the sweet spot yeah. when these images That's give that three-dimensional effect. It almost never works. Oh, God. <laughs> but he was kind of devoted to it. Yeah. Uh, he has since given um, his uh, pictures. He lost interest. He's given uh, the pictures to his son to keep. And, uh, you know, it uh, has... Uh, Seems to have some kind of sentimental value for his son. Meanwhile, then you point out to me in the New York Times in another totally other section, another article about stereo photography. This one titled The Marvelous Mr. Drysdale and His 3D Time Machines. Okay, so this is fun. Eric Drysdale uh, is a comedy writer yeah. for The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Mm -hmm. And just like, remember, um, for The Letterman Show, there was that guy who ends up collecting the um, LPs of the industrial musicals. Right. So this guy collects um, these uh, 3D photographs, these stereo photographs. But his twist is, yeah. and this I didn't know anything about. I'm not yeah. a photography person, so uh, it makes sense I wouldn't know about it. In 1994, his he's cleaning out his wife's grandmother's apartment. Yeah. And they find a stereoscopic camera, a 3D viewer, and 200 images dating from the 1940s. Mm -hmm. Okay? So apparently... There was a thing going on then. Um, the technology was introduced in 1947 by a company out of Milwaukee, the David White Company, uh, who made the stereo realist camera. Yeah. Now, it was quite expensive. So this is 1947. The camera cost 162 bucks. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was out of reach of most families. But by now, he has built up a collection of 30,000 um, pictures. Mm -hmm. Uh, 3,000, he says, uh, are, you know, 
uh, his good ones. And uh, so he's able to demonstrate these, and he does have the viewer. And the person who's writing the article, Stephen Kurutz, says it's an unbelievable experience looking at these images. These cameras used slide films. So you're basically looking at little slides. And uh, they're really uh, supposed to be fantastic. So that was kind of fun that um, these things live on. He does little shows. He does demonstrations Hmm. of the best of his collections. Sometimes they have a particular theme that appeals to wherever he's doing that. So that was uh, fascinating. You know, my aunt Aunt Lily used to have stuff like that when we visited her around 1960. We would look at, you know, the, the ones with the little disc that you would put in. And the Viewmaster. The Viewmaster. Yeah, the, yeah. Now, we all have Viewmasters, but uh, I had in, no idea that people uh, were had, that normal people had a real camera. No. There were those cameras in early photography. Yeah. Well, there were huge old wooden cameras yeah. with double lenses. Right. Well, and it uh, didn't have that. but uh, And they lost, they went out of fashion. Yeah. Because no one, like... Uh, Sam and Luke Mitchell, no one's that interested in having this double image yeah. hang on their wall. It was better than than television at that time. It was just at the point television was getting a little better and the image stuff was getting a little tired. But it was a real thing. the images are magical. All right. I'm not doubting it. Uh, so here, you were complaining before, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This is right in that category, so I'll spend just a second on it. The Yankees are back, or as, as, as we might call it, the evil empire is back. And what do we mean by that? We mean that the Yankees traditionally had the reputation of just spending a ton more money than anybody else and throwing their weight around and having uh, the most well-paid players. And if a person didn't work out, just jettisoning that player and going to the next high-priced player um, and sort of bullying the other teams in the league because they had a stronger financial base. And they sort of changed their stripes to some degree over the last 10 years, relying on uh, the farm system. So it was more economical, and frankly, that had greater appeal to a lot of people. The idea of the evil empire wasn't for everybody. So this is since uh, Steinbrenner died? Since Steinbrenner died. It's like kinda... the warmer, fuzzier Yankees? Well, yeah, the more like we're like the other teams. The problem is, over the last 10 years, the decade, as you put it, that's coming to a close, they haven't won a World Series. So guess what? Uh, they're back. So they went and they signed Garrett Cole in a contract that... Uh, dwarfed what anyone else was offering, about $340 million for nine years. Uh, you know, they outbid the Angels, they outbid the Dodgers. No one came within $30 million of what they were bidding. Uh, they just said, we want the best player in baseball, at least the best pitcher available in baseball, and we're just going to pay what it what it takes. And that's that. And I don't think they're done. So, uh, you know, again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. When I talk to Yankee fans, some of them are thrilled. We retooled. We got the best pitcher of baseball. And some of them, frankly, say, you know something? I was never comfortable with that old bit about we just threw our weight around and spent more money. So I don't know. So we'll see. But uh, once they start winning, I think all the Yankee fans will come into line. All right. Good. It's, it's, good. it's good to root against the Yankees. We all like that. Well, good. we'll see what the Mets do. Well, you know, we root for the Mets. We, yeah, we, we don't expect much. Right? Mets have been, you know, kind of... Well, you know, building the, up their coffers. Yeah, well, the Mets. This new, uh, the Mets have owner. a transaction which they're going to have yeah. a new investor and a new majority owner who's a who will make, who will be the Mr. wealthiest wealthiest owner uh, in the major leagues. Yeah, once they complete. So it. we'll but see. It'll take a few years. We'll see. You may be singing out of the other side of your. We'll see, Mr. Moneybags. Is I haven't heard that uh, that nickname. That's a good one. We'll see if he hangs on to that. Well, we don't say it in front of you. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Um. <laughs> anyway. 
so you know what else is in lately? Silhouettes. Really? In? Yeah, because you remember you um, you were charmed by that obituary of Lottie Renninger, right? Yes. Who did the silhouette movies? Right. Which seemed quite uh, fascinating. They're animated, and, yes. Uh, yeah, inspired uh, other movies. Uh, as well, uh, but um, there's an exhibition that will be opening at the New York Historical so- Society, uh, basically the history of silhouette pictures, uh, images, um, with some you know, interesting artists, including Hans Christian Andersen. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Did uh, a series here that you can see of acrobats. Yeah. And uh, silhouettes were very popular. They become popular as... Uh, as a um, portrait device mm-hmm. uh, and they even um, there you know there was it was hard uh, in say uh, for most of history for right. less than incredibly wealthy people to have their portrait done right it you talks a lot you didn't have talks a lot to hire right. a painter right. or sure. an artist to do your portrait so you can do so an actual silhouette the silhouettes and it didn't have to be an artist right. you didn't um, they actually had machines yeah. called a physiognotrace okay. uh, that would uh, you know you could trace the image of the head and it you know it, it was attached to something that would then uh, give you a much smaller um, image on a piece of paper while you're tracing the you know mm-hmm. um, life size head. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that loses out to photography in uh, the early 19th century because photography becomes in 1839. Daguerre, uh, of course, patents the da- the daguerreotype, yeah, sure. and uh, that becomes the inexpensive way yeah. of uh, getting your portrait done. But silhouettes hang on for a while. I have to say my dad, yeah. uh, when he was a boy, had some silhouettes done. Mm-hmm. And uh, no one knows where they were done. It, you know, it says uh, in the literature that um, they hung on being, you know, like state fair kind of booth uh, kind of thing. You know, like when you're walking down 42nd Street and there are all those quick artists on the side who will do a caricature of you. Yeah. So you know, kind of that idea. I guess. But anyway, and then there are modern artists like Carol Walker, who um, does extremely kind of interesting, but uh, challenging, uh, to some extent dark, uh, very animated uh, narratives of the African-American experience Mm -hmm. um, in silhouettes. So this is a big exhibition and uh, looks quite fascinating. Uh, at the uh, New York Historical Society, not starting until January 17th. So uh, you have time to go to that. So I also wanted to mention there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a couple of famous art books. Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects by Giorgio Vasari and the Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini by, as you might guess, Benvenuto, Benvenuto Cellini. Cellini. Right, of okay. course. So Vasari, of course, it's a famous book. And, you know, every time yeah, you're Vasari, in an you art about class, Vasari. people yeah. are always talking about it. And then, you know, Vasari says this, and yeah. Michelangelo did this, but of course he didn't really do that. And a lot of it uh, is kind of fabricated. That's true. But what... Uh, um, this writer, Colin Eisler, who's a professor at NYU, uh, um, kind of zeroes in on is his effect on crafting the image of the Medici. Uh, because, of course, uh, the Medici, uh, as uh, he sees it, as Eisler sees it, were a ruthless, rapacious family um, 
who succeeds in ruling the Western imagination, continuing to personify all that is true and good and beautiful, um, when in so many ways uh, the opposite was true. And that is partly uh, due to the spin that Vasari put on Mm -hmm. uh, the life and times of the Medici and the effect of the Medici uh, with respect to these artists Mm -hmm. uh, during this time. So that's kind of interesting. That's another example of the more things change, the more they stay the same. And uh, and then, um, you know, I have been, you know, I've been not reading the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini for many, many years. I may have to. Here's what he says about that uh, book. Syphilitic, violent, and a mythomaniac, the salacious, libidinous, bisexual Cellini prepared his autobiography to lessen the tedium of four years of Florentine house arrest for homosexual activity. In it, he recreated his abundant cloak-and-dagger adventures during an unusually peripatetic, passionate, paranoid and intrigue-filled life in papal, Medici, and French royal employ. And uh, he also says that uh, Cellini was essentially a Giovanni one-note. I am the greatest as sculptor, as goldsmith, as seducer, as intriguer. All my works are magical in their genesis, their value priceless, their admiration universal. And Eisler goes on to say, no other ego may ever have been recorded with such intimate, infectious self-satisfaction as Cellini's. He basically recommends the book and he says, you know, uh, should we want to read about uh, such a bad boy like this? And he says, yes, of course. Uh, It's the bad boys that are interesting. All right. You'll have to give us a report. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So I only had a very brief thing on basketball. Um, which and it's more of a cultural thing. So um, Kawhi Leonard uh, led the uh, Toronto Raptors to the championship last year in the NBA. He had been signed at the beginning of the year. He played just one year for the Raptors, and uh, Toronto had never won uh, the basketball championship in the NBA, and people were euphoric. Um, and then uh, at the end of the year, he signed with another team, and now he's playing for a different team uh, called the Clippers. And uh, the question is, uh, many people ask, what's going to happen when Kawhi Leonard returns to Toronto to play a game? How is he going to be received by the fans? And there is precedent in the U.S. for that sort of thing, and it's not too positive. People are not too happy when someone bolts and they leave the team. You recall there was some unhappiness when LeBron James left a couple of teams. So they played the game recently, just a couple of days ago. In Toronto, Kawhi Leonard came back, and guess what happened? What? Standing ovation. Ah. warmly received. Uh-huh. And there are all kinds of explanations, but a lot of it is the difference between Canada and the U.S. And the, the no, feeling, it's not. A lot of it. A lot well, of it. What about uh, LeBron? LeBron when he was, came back to Cleveland. No, he was booed a lot. He was booed a lot. Oh, come on. Yes, and he, then when he won for them. When he won for them. Yeah, they, but it, it, there's been a lot of ups and downs with, with LeBron. I, I don't, You know, we can get into that. But Kawhi was totally embraced. Notwithstanding, he left after a single season. A single season. And uh, many people explain that the championship meant that much, not only to Toronto, but to Canada as a whole. It doesn't have many championships, and certainly none in the NBA. And so he will always be regarded as a hero, and they're talking about building a statue outside the stadium for him. 
So there you All go. Right. You know, uh, interesting. All right. Are your so, heroes or your heroes, I guess. Uh, do we know anything new about David Stern? Uh, no, I don't know anything new about David Stern. Well, who's in the hospital? Yeah. Yes, with a brain hemorrhage. Right. Right. Used to be the commissioner or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yes. Of basketball? Yes. Okay. All right. Um, very fun article in the Wall Street Journal Review section about Jana Mendez, uh, a CIA chief of disguise. And uh, this is just great. This is just great. I have uh, no idea about just how sophisticated our CIA spy machine is. I thought that was all in the movies. I thought mm-hmm. that was all in the Americans. But uh, she's a woman who starts out as ninth as a secretary in 1966 and works her way up to, you know, a variety. She at some point is the chief of disguise. Um, she has very positions, various positions throughout uh, the CIA. And um, it's really amazing uh, the kinds of things she worked on with a staff with engineers, chemists, physicists, makeup artists, counterfeiters, ink specialists, which she likens to the Q branch in the James Bond films, except that they actually end up out in the field. Several times she feared for her life, once in Bogota, uh, during the height of the drug wars, Uh uh, I must say, Uh, not recently. Um, So she, this is an article, the uh, author is walking around the spy museum with her, uh, where's the spy museum? In, I'm guessing in Washington. No idea. Somewhere. I missed that part of the article. Anyway, uh, they're having a great time looking at all this uh, stuff. And uh, it's all very get smart, you mm-hmm. know. Um, again, James Bond, the Americans, and um, kind of fascinating, including the masks. She actually, um, to prove a point, in a, um, uh, I guess, uh, meeting with uh, George H.W. Bush, put on the mask, which made gave her the appearance of another colleague. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can't even imagine uh, a mask doing that so perfectly. And uh, everyone was thoroughly convinced uh, that uh, it was she until she peels off oh the mask. Uh, you know, a la Tom Cruise, right. uh, she says. But anyway... Um, couple of interesting things. They A lot of their work had to do with creating smaller and more powerful batteries. Because as she says, once you've bugged a table in a KGB you know, meeting room or something, chances that you can get back and uh, replace the battery are slim. Right. Uh, so this has, I guess, an impact on a lot of the technology uh, that we end up using in our phones mm-hmm. uh, today. Um uh, you know, she says it's amazing what they could do with wigs, noses, masks. Uh, they could make twins, tricking the KGB into following the wrong person. They could turn women into men, men into women. Although men generally didn't want to, uh, the male agents didn't want to be uh, uh, turned into women. Uh, so uh, there you have that. Um one other thing I wanted to mention uh, about it uh, is uh, that she says you just you can't believe how prolific how many spies are around, especially uh, in Russia. And uh, she says I don't know where Donald Trump stayed in Moscow, but I know without a doubt 
that his room was bugged. If he did anything he shouldn't have, there will be tapes. Okay, something to look forward to. Food for thought. Yeah, it's like the Americans, the way you read that article. I mean, you know, she makes it seem real. I guess I it know. is. I had no idea. I thought all of that was completely fabricated. No? But, uh, and she not. looks, there's a great picture of her. She looks completely normal. Oh, yeah. Nondescript. Harmless. Uh, harmless. Yeah. And uh, wow. Yeah. Wow, what Weird. a life. All right, so that's it. That uh, We'll be back next week as we really get to the edge of the holidays. Uh, but until then... Yeah, probably next week, I don't know, we'll just exchange a lot of cookie recipes yes. over the air, don't you think? Uh, that's what you want to do? Uh, until then... Why do I think that's not going to happen? This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan reading the paper. See you next week. <laughs>